I don't know if you've ever had an experience um, like this, but the other night, a couple of nights ago, I was at the house. Tammy and the kids had already gone to bed, and I was up a little bit later just taking care of a few things, and finally decided it was time that I needed to head off to bed myself. And so I started doing my nightly routine of securing the house. And so I went, closed the blinds, went to the front door, locked the front door, went to the back door, locked the back door, went to bed. Got in bed, fell quickly asleep, feeling safe and secure in my home. Next morning, woke up refreshed, energized because I had a great night's sleep. Got up, took a shower, got dressed, walked into the garage to set out and to start my day. And at that point, it hit me. I had went to bed feeling safe, feeling secure, but my home was not. You see, I'd left the garage door wide open all night. I slept well that night, I did, but I did it with a false sense of security. There was a threat there that could have revealed itself. Paul wants the Thessalonians to rest in their relationship with Jesus Christ. From the very first chapter of Thessalonians all the way to our chapter this morning in uh, chapter three of Second Thessalonians, Paul has been encouraging them. He's been instructing them. He's been co- uh, comforting them. He's encouraged them to keep changing the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's instructed them to excel still more and to passionately pursue sanctification as they respected their leaders and as they looked out for each other. He's comforted them, if you remember, with the promise of the return of Christ. He's even sort of instructed and corrected them on some of the misconceptions that they had about the return of Christ and the coming day of the Lord. And he encouraged them to persevere even in the face of continued persecution. And you've got to imagine that after all of that, The Thessalonians had to think, no doubt, they had to believe that, you know, that they could rest assured, knowing that Paul had prepared them to live out their faith. But before Paul brings this letter of 2 Thessalonians to a close, he wants to ensure that the Thessalonians don't rest with their garage door open, if you will. He doesn't want them to rest with this false sense of security. And so he's going to warn them of an impending threat. And he's going to give them some exhortations on how to deal with this threat. And so we're going to look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15 this morning. And we're going to identify this threat because it's a threat that's still very uh, applicable for us today. It's, It's there for us. And we need to heed Paul's exhortations. And so let's read the passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Verses 6 through 15. Paul writes, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, 
but rather to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And so Paul just jumps right into this section with a command that identifies for us the threat. He says, we command you to keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. Or or your translation might say leading an unruly life or being disorderly or acting irresponsibly. And so right away, Paul identifies his threat. And it's not an attack on the outside of the church against the people of God. In this case, it's a traitorous attack of the body of Christ against itself. One of the greatest dangers to the church at Thessalonica and arguably any church, including Southside Baptist, is the carelessness and the idleness of the people on the inside. And so you have this group of individuals in the church at Thessalonica who are not working. They're shirking their responsibility. And their actions are causing the, some serious problems and inside the church. And this isn't the first time that we've heard about this uh, group of people. If you remember, back in 1 Thessalonians, uh, Paul mentioned them a few times, and now he's mentioning them again in 2 Thessalonians. Some scholars suggest that this group of people were people who were waiting on the return of Christ, so they just quit their jobs and just thought they would wait. Other scholars say, no, 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 this is just some poor individuals who are trying to take advantage of those who are well off. And another group of scholars says, no, that's not it at all. These were Greeks, and work was beneath them. You know what? Paul doesn't tell us who they are. He doesn't tell us because it really doesn't matter who they are. What matters is that their actions are adversely affecting the church. They weren't working. They weren't contributing. And this was harming the church. And and Paul's already addressed this. It says in the text their actions were contrary to the tradition that they received from Paul. Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul said, "Uh, we encourage you brothers to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands as we commanded you. Did you catch that last little bit? He said, as we commanded you. Not only had Paul told them about this in 1 Thessalonians, but he had already given them instructions about it even before he wrote that first letter. He had addressed this when he was there with them in person, when the church was just getting started. And let me just say something about tradition. Sometimes we, we talk about scripture and tradition as if the two are completely separate, but Tradition doesn't have to be separate from the scripture. And in fact, in this case, it's not. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. The tradition that these people, this church at Thessalonica received, was the teaching of Paul, which in fact was the word of God. And so Paul says, look, this isn't just my command. This isn't just my instructions. No, this is a divine mandate. You have a divine mandate from God to work. Paul says the Christian life works. 
I don't know what happened, but somewhere along the way, I think we've gotten this idea that work is bad, right? I mean, we've all uh, seen the signs that say, you know, one day of fishing is better than a good day of work. Or maybe the one that says um, a great day at the beach is better than, or a bad day at the beach is better than a great day at the office. We've somehow got the idea that life is all about recreation and vacation, right? Thank God it's Friday or the song, living for the weekend, right? Let me tell you something. Contrary to popular belief, work is not a result of the fall. It's not a curse. Work's not a curse. Genesis chapter 1, pre-fall, pre-sin, God commands man to subdue the earth. That's work. Genesis chapter 2, God put man in the garden to work it, to keep it. Again, pre-fall. Certainly the nature of work has changed after the fall. Work became difficult. Labor became painful. It says you will eat by the sweat of your brow. And yet work is still a biblical mandate. All through the Bible, over and over again, work is mentioned. You see in the Psalms, by the work of your hands. The book of Proverbs warns us repeatedly about the sluggard, right? The guy who's not working. In uh, Colossians 3.23, it says, Whatever you do, work heartily as to the Lord and not for men. Titus 3.14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. We keep going all day here. The Bible is full of verses about working. We're just skimming the surface. Paul says, work, just do something. Work for the cause of Christ. Don't be idle. Doing something, that's the call of the gospel on your life. Go, make disciples, teach them, serve people, work. Paul's simply saying, walk in obedience to the word of God. And if anyone refuses to do that, Paul commands the rest of us in the name of Christ to keep away from them. This act of stubborn disobedience, this threat to the church, it needs to be dealt with. And so Paul gives the church a command. He gives the church a command to discipline the disobedient. He says, stay away from those people who won't work. Now he's not talking about the people who want to work but somehow can't find work. He's not talking about the people who are disabled or unable to work he's talking about these people who are perfectly capable of doing work but they just won't i I don't know how to say this nice so i'm not even really going to try paul's saying that there are believers in the church at thessalonica that are just they're just flat out lazy they came to the church to be served and not to serve paul doesn't mention their names I'm pretty confident, though, that when this letter was read aloud to the church at Thessalonica, everybody knew who Paul was talking about. They knew who was not working. And Paul says this to them for the purpose of motivating them. It's kind of harsh language. It's kind of some tough love that Paul's giving here. Paul doesn't say, you know, well, let's give them another chance. Let's just, don't, don't, don't do this yet, don't. Don't warn them, just, just kind of lovingly say, hey, man, you know, you, you probably ought to get to work. No, Paul's harsh. He, he's past that point. He gives them a command. He says, we command you. 
case you don't know, that, that's military language. This is the officer giving a command to his troops. But more than that, Paul says, we command you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't the command from the lowly lieutenant. This isn't just some small guy kind of doing his own thing. No, this command is coming from the top. Paul says, I command you with the authority of Jesus Christ. So do not disobey this command. Separate yourselves. Keep away from these people. What Paul's telling these guys is firm. And it sounds harsh. But I I think it needed to be. Because some problems in the church, some threats, aren't just a concern for the individuals. The lack of work in the church was a problem for the entire body of believers. Paul had already addressed this issue in person. He wrote 1 Thessalonians along with Silas and Timothy and he addressed this issue. And now he's heard again that these guys are still walking in disobedience. And so now Paul is going to bring this before the church. And that's what he's doing in this letter. Because their actions are affecting everyone. They're affecting the entire church. They're damaging the witness of the church. And so he goes to them and he instructs the church to enact some discipline. If we think about this in light of church discipline that's described for us in the book of Matthew... You know, when a brother is sin, you're supposed to go to him, right? Well, we're at this point where Paul says, take them before the church and try to get them to repent. Let, th- let them see that the church is unified, saying this is sin. He's not at the final stage in Matthew where Matthew says, if the brother refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. No. He's not saying treat them as Gentiles or treat them as unbelievers because these people are still part of the body of Christ. And we know that because in verse 6, Paul says um, these individuals are brothers. He calls them brothers again in verse 15. And so these people are still part of the body of Christ. And for their sake, in hopes of their repentance and eventual reconciliation to the body, the church is supposed to keep away from them. No more fellowship. No more working together. No more Lord's Supper, no more communion together. Paul's trying to get them to see their sin, to get them to change. Paul continues in verses 7 through 9 saying that not only were these individuals not following the the tradition, the teaching that he had taught for them, but they were ignoring the example that he had laid out for them. Paul's told them repeatedly that Christians aren't lazy. Christians aren't idle. Christians work. That's what they do. But he doesn't stop there. He says, friends, brothers, I'm not telling you to do something that I haven't done or won't do. He straight up says to them, you yourselves know that you must imitate us. Paul says, guys, when I was with you, I set the example for you. You didn't see me acting idle when I was there with you. You didn't see me mooching off people. You didn't see me eating bread without paying for it. No, I worked. And Paul says, I worked hard night and day so that I wouldn't be a burden to you. He says, when I was with you, not only did I teach you the truth, I lived it out. Listen, Paul didn't have to do that. 1 Timothy, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, make it very clear that the normal procedure is for the church, the body of believers, to take care of its pastors. 
In First Timothy even says that those elders and those pastors who preach and teach are worthy of double honor. And so Paul, he could have came in here and he could have said, look, you guys are going to need to take care of me. You're going to need to pay me. You're going to um, make sure that you give me some food. But Paul doesn't do that. And the implication, the reason that he doesn't do that is because he knows that there's some people in the church who have a tendency to idleness. Paul saw that some of them weren't working and he didn't want to give them an excuse. He didn't want anyone to be able to come up and say, well, you know, I'm not working. Paul doesn't work. I'm just trying to be like Paul. No. Instead, Paul lays out the example. And that was difficult for Paul. The text says that he labored, that he struggled night and day. Paul is exhausting himself for the cause of Christ. He basically tells these guys, look, I practiced what I preached when I was with you. And when you think about it, Paul's only setting the example that had been set for him. He's setting the example of Jesus Christ. The example that Christ had laid out for him. There's no doubt that the greatest worker in the universe, the hardest worker, is God. He created everything. He created the universe. All we have to do is look around outside for a few seconds to see the work of his hands. He's at work even now sustaining it. Colossians makes it very clear that he is the one holding all things together. More than that, he's working out his purposes, his plans, and his promises for us. One of his promises, the promise of salvation, he is the one who does the work of salvation. He's working even now in you to sanctify you. We've talked about that. God is a God who works. And the perfect example of God set before us, the perfect example of the invisible God is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh. Hebrews refers to him as the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe with the word of his power. Jesus says, my father is working and I am working. And so in essence, Paul says to the Thessalonians here, look, I set the example before you because Christ has set the example for me. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul just flat out says that. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul taught them the, taught them the truth. He, he lived it out. He worked. He set the example Some of you might be thinking at this point that Paul's kind of took this whole work thing a little bit over the top. He's a little bit too serious on this idea of work. Listen, he's just getting started. He he taught them the truth. He reminded them that he set the example for them, but then he, he takes it up a notch. It's like his reminder to them about the example that he set when he was there for them triggered the memory. And then he says, and oh, by the way, do you remember what I used to say to you all the time when I was with you? You remember, what did I say? You don't work, you don't eat, right? And and so Paul is, again, not talking about the people who can't work. He's talking about the people who won't work. And he describes these people as busybodies. We know what Paul's talking about when he uses the word busybodies. Immediately you start thinking in your mind, this person and this, I mean, you know. You know what a busybody is, And these people are minding everybody else's business, right? 
They're meddling in everyone else's affairs, things that don't even concern them. They're not working, and instead they're, they're sticking their nose in everything. And so Paul reiterates in verse 12 what he's been saying to them all along. He says, I command and encourage you in the Lord Jesus Christ to do your work quietly and to earn your own living. He's speaking directly to those people who weren't working. He's being firm. And yet he's loving and he's encouraging to them. He says to these guys, get to work. As a believer in Jesus Christ, this this is who you are. This is what you were made for. Be who God's called you to be. Get to work. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Paul says to these people who are not working, If you're truly a follower of Christ, then for the sake of Christ in you, Get after it. Get to work. Stop being a busybody and get busy working for the kingdom. In verses 6 through 12, Paul just points out to us the threat. He points out the threat to the church and he exhorts the people on how to deal with this threat. But when we get to verse 13, Paul, in a sense, acknowledges another threat. This second threat is sort of a result of the first Listen to what it says. It says, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. So the first threat is this group of individuals that's in the church who are not working. They're interfering. They're not busy, but they're being busy bodies. And it's the actions of this group that lead into this second threat. People were getting tired. They're they're getting irritated. The majority of the congregation who's working is getting frustrated. They're getting discouraged by this small group, this minority who refuses to work. And it was affecting their harmony. It was affecting their effectiveness as a body of believers. And so the majority of the people who are working are at this point kind of saying, you know what? They're just throwing up their hands. That's it. I'm done. I'm tired of this. And Paul says to them, no, 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 no. Listen, please, I know it's frustrating. I know what you're dealing with. I've already addressed this twice, and now I'm addressing it again. I'm frustrated too. But don't grow weary in doing good. Don't you stop walking in obedience to the Lord. You stay the course. You press on toward the mark. And many of us, we can relate to this. We understand how this happens because we've been there, right? You're doing your best. You're trying to live out the gospel. You're working for the kingdom. You're you're doing your best to live the Christian life. And there's someone, some group, some people around you, maybe even in the church, who aren't working. And you get frustrated with them. Maybe it hits a little closer to home. Maybe the the group, the the people who aren't working, who aren't um, seeking after Christ, who aren't living in accordance with the Bible, Maybe they're in your own home. And what does that do to you? Does that encourage you? Does that give you uh, strength to, to, to keep going, to, to press on in your faith? No, obviously not. It discourages you. It tempts you to stumble. You, you say, I'm done. And when that happens, when, when you're walking in obedience and you're working hard for the kingdom, Paul says, keep on doing it. 
Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't give up. Don't stop. Keep on striving. Persevere all the more. Don't be discouraged by what's going on around you or better yet, what's not going on around you, right? There's probably some of you that are there right now. There's probably people that, there has to be a few people in this congregation right now that are discouraged this morning. You've been working. You've been trying to live out the Christian life. You've been striving for the kingdom. And if you're honest, you're at the end of your rope. And all you want to do is, is throw up your hands and say, that's it. I'm done. I, I give up. But the Spirit of God through Paul is crying out to you this morning saying, do not grow weary. Don't grow weary in doing good. You be strong. Not in your own power, but in the power of his might. Ephesians 6.10. And remember what Isaiah 40.29 says. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. When you're at the end of the rope and you just want to give in, you want to just quit. It's when Paul's saying to you, let the words of Nehemiah come out of your mouth. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Paul says, live with tenacity. Live with resolve. Don't grow weary in doing good no matter what everybody else is doing. Then in verses 14 and 15, Paul gives one final exhortation to the majority. He says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. What's Paul saying there when he says, take note? Tim, you're not working. I'm writing that down. No, that's not what he's saying. And when he says, take note, he's saying, don't condone their actions. Don't approve of them. Don't enable those people who, who aren't walking in obedience, who aren't working, who aren't doing good. He says, instead, take action. Take note of them. Lovingly confront them. And if they don't see their sin, they don't repent at this point, then Paul says have nothing to do with them so they'll feel ashamed. Why does Paul want them to feel ashamed? He wants them to feel ashamed because his hope is that the shame that they feel for not walking in obedience to Christ will cause them to repent, that they'll see themselves for who they are. The goal is repentance and restoration. Paul says take action so that they'll see that their sin is definitely present in their life and they'll stop. Or in this case, they'll start, they'll get busy, they'll get to work. You know, most of the time when we think about church discipline, I think the majority of us think that that's something that's set aside for the pastors and the elders, right? All the pastors and the elders will handle that. But look who Paul's speaking to here. He's speaking to the whole congregation. And he says, if there are people in your church that are walking in disobedience to the Lord, if there are people who continue to walk in idleness when scripture clearly says work, don't condone that. Don't approve that. Don't enable that. Don't even associate with those people. You have a role to play in this process. It's not just up to the pastors. It's not just up to the elders. Paul says it's up to you. 
And the implication that ought to encourage you is that when you do that, this is one of the ways that God uses to bring these people back to repentance. And I've seen this happen right here at Southside. I've seen men who've stopped walking in obedience to the word of God. I've seen men who quit working. I've seen other men take note of that, go to them, confront them, and say, brother, you're not walking in obedience. You've stopped living and working for the kingdom. You need to turn back to the Lord. I've seen some of our older ladies talk to the younger ones, and they come with them, to them with love and with gentleness, and they confront them. They're not trying to be haughty judges of other people. Their goal is to, is to win them back. Their goal is to confront them so they see their sin and turn back, so that they repent, so that they can be reconciled and restored to the family. You may be wondering why Paul would devote so much of this letter to this idea of work. But you have to understand that for Paul, Christianity was, was worthless unless it found its way into the fabric of our everyday lives. How the church lives and works speaks volumes about what the church really believes. If you take the word of God seriously, then you take the word of God to work with you. It comes out in what you do. We're supposed to be setting the example. We're supposed to be setting the example here in this body of believers. We're supposed to be setting the example in our places of work. And we're supposed to be setting the example in our homes. And so the question that we probably need to ask ourselves this morning is which group am I in? Here's my heart, Lord. Speak what is true. Which one of these groups am I in? Am I working for the kingdom or am I walking irresponsibly? Am I walking in idleness? And so men, I'm gonna start with you. We're supposed to be leading, right? How you doing on this one? Are you working here at the church? Are you giving of yourself to this body of believers? What about at your job? What would your boss say? Or your coworkers? Who are you at work? Or maybe the toughest one is, who are you at home? How are you working at home? What would your wife say? What would your kids say? I want to confess to you, I'm preaching this to myself just as much as I'm preaching it to you. And so maybe I need to ask the question a different way. Men, do you you go to bed exhausted at night? I'm not asking if you go to bed tired, because we all are tired, right? I'm asking, do you go to bed spent for the cause of Christ? Do, Do you go to bed just poured out because you've given every last bit of yourself to your wife and and your kids. Listen, God has designed us to work. It's who we are. That's what we're created for. So, So you have to do that at church and you have to do that at your workplace, but you have to do that at home. He wants you to be poured out so that whenever you get in your car and you get ready to head home for the day, 
you're, you're reading the Psalms in your head because you're using them as prayers. Lord, you are my refuge. You're, you're my strength. I need you today. I cannot do this on my own. He wants you to be poured out so that you find your rest in him. And when you're doing that, when you're pouring yourself out for the sake of the gospel, when you're working, when you're finding your rest in him, there's no room for idleness. Ladies, are you serving your husbands? Are you being the helpmate that God has called you to be to them? Are you training up your children? Is your home a refuge of peace for your family? Students, are you honoring your parents? Are you striving for excellence at school? Do you take every opportunity you can to to live for the gospel? Graduates, I think this is particularly applicable to you this morning. As you head off onto this next phase of life, whether that's entering into the workforce or, or going to school to pursue higher education, I imagine that there's a sense, a part of you that feels pretty confident that you're ready. You feel like your parents have prepared you, that your school has prepared you, and even this church has prepared you to face the world and to live out your faith. But let me just encourage you guys. Heed Paul's warning. Hold tight to his exhortations. Don't do this with a false sense of security. Work as unto the Lord. And and this is for all of us. Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't cut corners. Don't take the easy path. Graduates, when you go off to find a church... Don't find a church that serves you, that has great music and great preaching and that you enjoy. Find one that does those things and where you can serve as well. Pour yourself out for the sake of the gospel. Proverbs 16, 27 says, idle hands are the devil's workshop. The best example that comes to mind or maybe the worst example, um, depending on your perspective, is David. David's the king, and when all the mighty men are going off to battle, he's sitting on his porch. He's being idle. He's entering into the devil's workshop. And you know the story, you know what happens. He sees Bathsheba and begins to lust for her. And so he takes her, he commits adultery, he kills her husband, and then he tries to cover it up. Don't be idle this morning. Work. Spend your life for the glory of God. Pour yourself out for the sake of the gospel. 